Take your Bibles, if you would, please, this morning and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Good to have all of you here. Uh, We're starting to get people back, which is great. Um, Just a quick review. If you weren't here last week, I'm sure you've heard by now that I took the pulpit and I handed it over to our new teaching pastor, Jim Supp, but he will not start fully until January, so you haven't gotten rid of me yet. And I'm going to be teaching this week and next week. And if our house doesn't sell, I'll be here for another 30 years. And uh, <laughs> any rate, um, we are starting a new series, as you can see, All Things New. I'm going to give you kind of a little sense of what this series is about in a moment. But I want to read Galatians chapter 2, a very well-known passage as our opening text Verse 20, all right? I've memorized this in the King James, but I think I can get through it in the NIV. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Then it goes on, and actually another verse that I love so dearly is verse 21 I do not set aside the grace of God. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Father, thank you for these words. And I pray today as we open up this new series that it would be literally life-changing for every single one of us here. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to welcome those of you that are watching online, certainly those that are here. I'm going to say something I'd... I can honestly say I don't think I've said very many times before. But in preparation for this series and this message today, um, I don't know that I've ever had anything impact my life as much as this preparation has done for me. And I'll tell you why. What we're looking at here is going back and taking some of the basic things of the Christian life that have been diluted over time. In other words, oh, I know that. I know Christ lives in me. Oh, oh, I I know all about the fact that I've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of God's near son. Oh, yeah, I know that that Christ is my life. Oh, oh, yes, I, I know that I've been born again. Oh, and we have all these terms. But the scriptures are pretty clear that if you don't really grasp these, if you're not marinating in these, not much happens. They're just words on a page. And I've had to go back and look at some of my own fears and anxieties and worries and concerns about all that's going on everywhere. And I've had to get back to these basics. And it has actually, if you can believe this, calmed me down. I'm not a calm person. My DNA just isn't there. I've got the metabolism of a, you know, a chipmunk on steroids with caffeine in his veins. You know, that's just, that's just who I am. And I've, I've really had to go back and I, I started thinking about all these statements that are made about us, about me as a person who is in Christ and learning to literally slow my life down. What's the rush? And what am I worried about? And why am I anxious for this and that? And I'm telling you, it has actually really impacted my life, and I hope that it has the same for you as an impact. All things new. Basically, what we're looking at is what does it really mean to live as a child of God? 
What do all these terms even mean? And you're going to hear more from other teachers, but I've got these first two weeks. And I've picked a couple of things. For example, uh, we are chosen, we are loved, we are redeemed, we're adopted, we're forgiven, we're justified, and we're transformed. That's a lot, all right? But we don't often think about these and really allow them to fill our hearts and our spirits and our mind and our souls and, and it, it has a tremendous impact because if you look at the Apostle Paul's life, Paul went through more than all of us combined when it comes to difficulties and trials. And he was able to say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He was able to say that and he really meant it. That's what got him through the struggles and the anxieties and the difficulties of life, and he had plenty of things that he needed to worry about. So this whole, this series is designed to help us live out what God says is true of us. It's designed to help us live out what God says is true of us. So I've picked just a couple. When I, we talked about being chosen, loved, redeemed, adopted, I have picked out two, and one I'm going to spend most of the time on. We're going to talk about being justified, and then we're going to talk about spend most of our time on being transformed, the inner transformation that takes place when we really believe these things. Um, justified, as many of you know, or certainly should know, to be justified means to be declared righteous, all right? The moment that you put your faith in Christ, it, in, in an instantaneous moment, you were declared righteous. Now, religion has a totally different story. It's got it backwards. It thinks that you earn your righteousness, and therefore, once you get into heaven, God will look at your spiritual letter sweater and say, I'm so impressed, I'll let you in. But God has a different story. The only entrance into the Christian life is through the entrance of the gospel. And, and you'll even notice that that. And in verse 21, it says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If I could gain my righteousness by keeping the law or being good or whatever, Christ didn't need to die. So this all changes a person's life and, and an understanding. So this whole thing is, is, is designed to help us understand what God has called us to truly be. So justified, I'm declared righteous. That takes place just like that. Transformation is progressive sanctification. To be sanctified means to be set apart. Transformation is a long haul. It's the entire life that you live as a Christian. And hopefully, all of us find ourselves being transformed, being renewed day by day. If we look back five years and we say, I'm still in the same place, then I'm not being transformed. Might be a believer, but I'm not really being transformed. And God has called us to be transformed. In, in Romans chapter 12, as a matter of fact, I'd like you to turn there. I want you to actually see this. In Romans chapter 12, um, or flip through your phone or whatever you've got to get to it because this is important. Romans chapter 12. Listen, listen to the wording in this text. Paul, so much up to this point, has given lots of doctrine. Now he's coming to a place of the real practical outpouring, out living of, of the Spirit of God through our lives. Verse 1. Therefore, 
as a result of everything that's been set up to this point, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world or of this age. Don't let this world mold you into its way of thinking. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The reason that your mind needs to be renewed is because when you came into this world, your mind was filled and built into your whole system was, I love myself, everything revolves around me. There's greed and anger and lust and jealousy and envy and hatred and malice and fear and worry and guilt and shame and you name it. It's in the human heart. And this is why the world is always trying to change that, but it can't because the only way is through the gospel. There has to be a transformation by the Spirit of God. And so when Paul is talking here about this transformation, he is saying, this is, this is a lifelong process. I, I'm urging you by the mercies of God that you present yourselves, your body, as a living sacrifice. The problem with sacrifices is that we keep crawling off the altar. You know, we put ourselves on there and we crawl right back off. That's the, the nature of, of presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. But this is a transformation, and it takes place over a period of time. But in order to be transformed, you have to know what God says about who you are in Christ. Otherwise, transformation doesn't take place. And that's why a person has to spend time in the Word realizing what God has to say. Realizing things like, I've passed from death to life. Or, I've been born again. Or I've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light or in the kingdom of God's dear son. Or Christ in me, the hope of glory. All of those things are nice statements, but they're just statements. Unless we take them in, digest them, and let them become part of our whole spiritual nature and life, and it changes us. Now I'm going to go back and give you a, a, a little snapshot of a, of a message that I gave probably 35 years ago. I'm guessing something like that. And I've mentioned it several times through the years, but you're not going to remember all about it, but here, here's, here was the title of the message. The title of the message was Calculating the Average. That was the title of the message. And here's what the message was about. A little child is born into this world, and at about the age of five maybe six, about as far back as we can kind of remember, we started calculating the average. We didn't know what calculate meant. We didn't know what average meant, but we calculated the average. I'm taller than the other kids around me. I'm shorter than the other kids around me. I'm faster. I'm slower. I'm about like all of them. I'm smarter. I'm not as smart. I think I'm about average. You're, you're, you're calculating this. You start, you start looking at life and you begin to realize sort of where you fit in the scheme of things. You sort of figure out sort of who you are. 
in comparison with other people. And we calculate the average for the rest of our lives. And the world helps us do it. Boy, does it help us do it. Through advertisements and all kinds of... Constantly being told, you need to conform yourself to what we say is the ultimate standard. The problem with calculating the average is, this, be, this shapes our life. It really shapes our life. And if we become too fearful because we're not good at this or we're better at that and we, we race into certain things we're good at and we avoid things we're not good at, it begins to shape our whole life. And you've certainly heard my story, but I, I hated with a passion, literally traumatized me going to school because I knew that I was not average. I knew that I was below average. School was not my thing, all right? And to sit in a classroom was traumatizing for me, absolutely traumatizing. I wasn't a great athlete, but I was a good athlete. So going on to the playground was great for me or playing sports when I got in high school or college because those things came more easily to me. So I, I would love that part, but not the academic part, all right? So we're constantly doing that. We do that today when we walk into a room and we say, you know, I, I think my clothes are better than the rest of the people here. I think I'm better looking. That's what I think every week when I stand up here. Uh, <clears throat> I think I'm better looking than the other people that are around me and so on. So we're sort of always doing this, but we don't need to. Paul is constantly saying, stop that. Get away from that. That is a form of idolatry, which we'll look at here in a moment. The term identity is a huge word. We often hear, my identity is with Christ. Paul is identifying himself with Christ in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. So his identity is in Christ. We often say my identity is in Christ, but is it really? Is it really in Christ? Or is it in all these other things that the world is constantly trying to conform us to? So our identity. It's interesting because identity has taken on, it's become a very popular word. We now talk about identity politics. I've never heard that term in my life before until the last couple of years. Gender identity. There was no gender. Everybody knew what they were. Not anymore. Not anymore. This word identity is a huge word now. And this is why Paul says, stop being conformed. Don't let this world shape you. Don't let this world bring you into its mold. You need to have your mind renewed. And when your mind is renewed, as Paul's was, you could see who I am in Christ and that I really am in a new kingdom, that I'm a stranger and a pilgrim and a sojourner simply passing through this world. That's it. And that life is a vapor and it's short. All these things play out in what we're talking about here in all things new looking at ourselves as a true child of God. The problem is, is that this idea of identities, there are competing identities. We've got the identity that Paul calls us to, the scriptures call us to, but the world also has an identity. <clears throat> and it wants to shape you to its identity from the moment that you're about five or six years old, it starts shaping you. Now I'm going to run through some of these identities which can become idolatry. 
Now, idolatry ultimately is the number one sin mentioned in the Old Testament, and idolatry is simply putting anything, you're hoping anything, above God. Now, idolatry can also be taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing. Now, this is going to be a little painful. I'm going to run through a few of these, all right? And these are good things that can become the ultimate thing. And if it doesn't work out, you just feel like life is over. Just, it's just done if, you, if, you, if this isn't it. So here's the world's form of some idolatry. Your family, all right? We all know that the Facebook family or whatever the social media is not the real family. You know the... Everybody... Why don't they take a picture of, you know, what's really going on a good bit of the time? But we, we want to present ourselves in a certain way. And there's nothing wrong with a good family. That's fine. But suppose your family doesn't work out. Suppose things fall apart. Uh, then what happens? Well, then you feel like your world has fallen apart because that has been your identity, your family, when it, when it doesn't need to be. It's important, but it can eventually become idolatrous. Sports. I think it's wonderful to play sports. I think it's wonderful if your kids can play sports at a high level. But, you know, some people have put such an emphasis on that that the very thought of my child not getting an athletic scholarship or going on or doing whatever is just the world's falling apart. You know what, how old this starts? How many times have you seen on the news where a fistfight breaks out in the stands of five- and six-year-olds playing t-ball or something, but the ump called a bad call, and this father says something to another father, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a brawl. That's idolatry. There's something just wrong with that, and we see it all the time. We see it in sporting events and everything. It can be a good thing. Now it becomes an idolatrous thing. Grades. It's great if you can get your children to get good grades, or if you've got good grades, it's wonderful. But suppose they don't. Does your world fall apart because my child didn't get into Harvard or Princeton or Yale? And if, if, if you're, you think your world's going to fall apart if that doesn't work, there's a problem. Paul says you're being conformed to this world. Nothing wrong with them getting there. That's fine. But that is not the ultimate. That is not the ultimate. Looks. How much time do we spend in front of the mirror, but yet the Bible refers to as, as the mirror of the word? looking in the Word where we see the, the, the reality of ourselves. And the world is constantly trying to tell you how to look better, how to look better than somebody else. Pride isn't just being as good-looking as somebody else. It's wanting to look better than somebody else. It's wanting to have more than what somebody else has. And that's the nature of the human heart. And if you're watching online, you know it's true. This is the problem with us trying to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps and trying to change things when we really can't. It's the nature of the human heart. Success. Here's, a, here's an enormous idol. Success. What is success? Well, according to Psalm 1, uh, the Bible says, the person that meditates day and night, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Is it talking about money and fame? And, no, it's talking about prospering in life, living a victorious life, a life that's set aside of all the fears and the anxieties and the worries and everything else that just sort of naturally comes in when you live in a broken, fallen world. Money. 
It, it's, it's interesting to me that, that on our, our dollars or bills, and it, it says, in God we trust. It should say, in money we trust. <laughs> money is the, is, the, is the God of the age and has been for a, for a long, long time. Nothing wrong with money until it becomes an idol. Power, all these things. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. All right? These are the constant, never-ending reminders, but your, your mind and your thinking is transformed as you spend time seeing what God has to say about these things. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Those aren't just words. That's our hope. It's in Christ, all right? Now, when I think of this whole subject of idolatry, again, idolatry can be putting your trust and your hope in anything above God himself who is sovereign, all right? Whether it's the government or the military or medicine or, or whatever, we have to be careful in, in thinking that we're going to control all the things in this world. But also idolatry, as I said, can be taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing, whether it's success or family or, or, or whatever it happens to be. And all of us here have got to pause and say, okay, what's my idol? What is my idol? As Martin Luther said, our hearts are idol factories. We manufacture idols out of our heart. And, and we all struggle with them. We all have them. It, we, we have them as we see things over and over again, day after day. At the end of Romans chapter 1, there's a whole list of the sins of, of mankind, an entire laundry list. It's in verse 32. You can go back and look at it sometimes. It's a whole list. And one of them is that mankind is actually an inventor of evil things. We invent evil things. The internet is filled with inventions of evil things to, you know, sex trafficking or trying to draw your children into this or that or all the different things. We invent that. That's what comes out of the human heart. And there's only one solution, and it is the gospel. And it is coming in and realizing what the scriptures actually say is true about me. Anytime we have something that is above God, it becomes idolatry. Here's your tagline. You ready? Idolatry is a godless identity. Idolatry is a godless identity. When I am idolizing my family, my success, my money, my power, that is a godless identity because your identity is no longer in God, in Christ, in the gospel. It is in yourself and what you've accomplished and all these other things. And that's why it's godless, all right? So keep that in mind because every single one of us, I don't care who you are, I don't care how righteous you are, I don't care how far along you are, we're battling, the, battling these things every single day. In Luke chapter 12, we have a man that comes to Jesus and he says, Master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, <clears throat> A man's life is, does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. I've often said that's the most unbelieved verse in the Bible, all right? We always think that life consists in what we possess. And then he goes on, and he, and he says, there was, a, there was a man who had, a, uh, who had a, a field that was producing lots and lots of crops, and he had so much, he was becoming wealthy, that he decided to build bigger barns. And he built bigger and bigger barns. And in this parable, 
This man is saying, oh, I have so much. I have many years left to live. I can sit back and eat, drink, and be merry. His hope was in his idol, which was a godless idol, all right? And then at the end, Jesus says, you fool. Tonight your soul will be required of you. Then who will own all those things? And then he finishes with this. And so is it for anyone who is not rich toward God. Anyone who is not rich toward God. Not rich in this world, not rich in success and that, rich toward God. That is a, that's such a powerful, it's, it's <laughs> to double up on, it's a rich term to say we need to be rich toward God. And why does Jesus tell these parables? It's to drive home these points, to drive home this, this understanding. Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 5, I should have looked it up, but I believe it's chapter 5, where it says, the more you own, the more people want your things. The more you own, the more you have to have people take care of all your stuff. You've got to hire this person and that person and so on. And again, nothing wrong with owning things as long as those things don't own you, all right? And nobody, nobody ever controls an idol. Idols control us. We don't have a say over, over whether or not we're going to fall. That idol literally controls us. And this is why Paul, don't be conformed to this world. Jeremiah chapter 9, I think verse 23. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the wealthy man glory in his wealth. But let them glory in this, that they know and understand me. How many times does God keep driving home, stop loving the world, stop identifying with all that the world has to offer, Yes, he's given us all things freely to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that. But when those things have such an attachment, we have lost, we've lost the value of what God says is true about us. And then all of a sudden, all the anxieties and fears and things begin to take over. It was Tom Brady. I think Brady has won seven Super Bowls. I think that's right. It was his fifth Super Bowl, I believe, where somebody interviewed him and said, how does it feel? He goes, not enough. Didn't do it. Got to have another one. And he did. And another one. And probably another one <laughs> coming up. Who knows? But you know what? Tom will eventually have to retire. And the proverb says, the eyes of a man are never satisfied. Seven won't do it. Eight won't do it. Fifty won't do it. Just won't. It's just how life is. One of the saddest things I saw, there was a special in Michael Jordan. I can't remember what it was called, but I, I, went, I watched it. And he was just sitting in his multi-gazillion dollar house going through one shot of bourbon after another as he was being interviewed. And he just looked like one of the saddest people I've ever seen. Here's, here's one of the greatest, and I, I love to watch Michael Jordan, one of the greatest athletes of all time. But those days are over. And, and when it's over, all of the, all the sports and things you're trying to hang on are, are gone. And then what have you got? You don't have, you don't have the Redeemer. You don't have Christ. You, you, you don't, and I'm not trying to judge where Michael Jordan is. I'm just simply saying that can't be where, where everything lies. It's got to be in the person of Christ. The fruit of, the, of, of true identity is this. The fruit of true identity 
It removes fear. It removes shame. It removes anxiety, envy, jealousy, pride. And I told you a while ago that I, I am by nature, a, I'm a ready, fire, aim type person. That's, that's me. And everybody on staff knows it. All the elders know it. I'm just wound up. I run up the stairs. I rarely walk anywhere. I just, I'm just who I am. And I begin to realize, you know, by really looking at this and going back to my identity, what's the rush? What's the hurry? You can't control really anything that's going on. You really can't. And it's interesting to note what creates anxiety in life. Are you ready for this? It was probably 10, 12 years ago, I read a book called The Paradox of Choice. I think I spoke on it many years ago. And the paradox of choice is this. Wherever there's choice, it creates a little bit of an anxiety. Just a mild, a very mild anxiety. Uh, when I go to the Amazon, there is no choice. Here's what you're going to eat tonight. More fish, more rice and beans. There is no restaurant. There is, there is no choice. So they don't have an anxiety over choice. You walk in to any place, Wegmans, any, any place you want to go, and go down the cereal aisle. Go down, go down the chips aisle. There's something like 385 different types of chips. And here's what happens. You walk up and you, oh, I grab my favorite chips. Oh, man, that's, look at that. Wow, it's raisin flavored. Oh, oh, look at this over here. This is cinnamon. And it, oh, it's in triangles. When do I get this? Or, and there's a slight angst. It's, it's very mild. And then you go to the lipstick aisle or you go to the, something with a sporting goods and you can't figure out what fishing rod to get because there's 8,000 to choose from. And it creates a very mild anxiety. But that anxiety builds up over a period of time. And it can actually cause depression. With all the different types of choices, the paradox of choice. Choice is not always a good thing. There should be two types of chips. My favorite too. All right, it's, <laughs> that's it. All right. Uh, so these things, these things are, are you know, they, they, they get in our, in our whole system. Look, uh, if you would, at Colossians. I'm going to read a couple of passages out of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. L- look at this. It's just amazing. Colossians chapter 1. I want you to look down at verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Notice, He has done it. This has already been done. We are in that kingdom, all right? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, all right? Look at chapter 3, 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. Ephesians says we're seated in the heavenlies. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where our hearts are to be set. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. How clear can that be? But it's so hard. The advertisements just keep coming. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You died. How did you die? When you entered into Christ, you died with Christ. 
You died with Christ. It was like you were on the cross. You died because you're now in him. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. That's what it means to be seated at the right hand, be seated with, with Christ in, in, in the heavenlies. All of these things. And even in, in, in uh, verses 9 through 14, look at, look at this. In this very same chapter, <clears throat> chapter 3. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. We are majoring in being, uh, living out being made in the image and likeness of God. That is, that is our major. People, what are you majoring in? I'm majoring in engineering. Christians are majoring in being conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29. That's this transformation that we're talking about. Yeah, we read these things. We go, that's, that's nice. And you might underline it. And, you know, but it, it requires real, genuine meditation to say, if that's true of me, then so many of these other things shouldn't be true. I shouldn't be laying awake at night wondering whether or not the, the paint that we're going to paint the living room with is going to match the carpeting uh, and, and tossing and turning. We all do it. We, we, we Almost all of us do it. But I guarantee you the Apostle Paul didn't do it. He, had a, he was a tent maker. And his tent, I'm sure, looked the same every night. He didn't care what the, the color was, all right? And these are all nice things, but they can become ultimate things and do severe damage to us. So, practically speaking, how would our lives be transformed if we believed the things we've studied right here? How would our lives be transformed if we really believe that I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but Christ now lives in me? <clears throat> that I've passed from death unto life. That I've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of God's dear son. How would, I, how, how would my life be different? Christ in you, the hope of glory. How, how would it be different if I really understood I'm seated in the heavenlies, that I've died and my life is hidden with Christ in God? It would, it, would, it would transform us. It would transform us. It'd be an inner transformation by the power of the Spirit. Andre Agassi, a famous tennis player, probably remember the ad. Uh, years ago, probably 20 years now, uh, he was, I think it was Canon. I don't think it was Nike, it was Canon. And the, the, the big line was, image is everything. And he was right. Image is everything, but not that image. Not the image he was talking about. He was talking about being conformed to this world, having, having the image of this world, looking good, doing that, so on. And yet, it, yet in Genesis, we, we, we find uh, that God creates man in his image. Now, God tells us, don't make any images of me, don't make any, but yet he makes an image of himself, us. And we're to be conformed to that image. And the more we're conformed to the image of Christ, the more we glorify God. And then God is glorified as we are being transformed. We're transformed, he's glorified. And people around us see that. They see that we really believe what we claim to believe. So we're majoring in being conformed to the image of Christ. Have you experienced this? Would you look back and see whether or not your life is being transformed? Or are the brakes on, the parking brake, and just nothing has happened in four or five years? It's time to look at these things, listen to this whole series, and I believe it will really change your life. Um, I'll give you one final illustration, then we'll wrap this up, and that is this. When a baby is born, that child 
is used to being in a dark little cocoon, warm and cozy. When that child comes out, all of a sudden that child sees light for the first time. That child really can hear. They can hear a little bit in it, but they can really start to hear. All of their, their senses and their faculties are all of a sudden being transformed. Something begins to happen. They come out, they're crying, they're blinded, it's cold, and they, they don't even know what's going on here. And then, as they get older, they start calculating the average. They start figuring out what life's all about. They hit their teen years, and they get 20s and married, whatever it happens to be. But there is a natural transformation that takes place just through the nature of being a human being. Paul is saying, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're a human being. You need to be born into God's family and then spend time meditating what God has to say is true of you and then live that out. And that's transformation. That's what he's talking about. Paul's life was just so wrapped up in his identity with Christ. And I've said it several times, the only entrance into this is through the power of the gospel, and the term gospel simply means good news. But it's no longer good news. We've heard it so many times. It's old news. It's, it's, we don't even identify much with it anymore. And yet, it, it's, it isn't something we just believed at one time. It's something we need to believe every day. Somebody has once said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. I'm not sure I do that, but as I go back and look at this, I begin to realize all that I have in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, and you're, maybe you're watching online or you're here, you've never put your faith in Christ, to be in Christ means to realize that I can't possibly, I can't possibly do anything in my own human righteousness to present before God so that he'll let me into his kingdom. What I must do is realize I have nothing to offer at all. Zero. There is nothing in me that, that, that impresses God, all right? And when I rely so much on myself, that becomes an idolatry. My religion can become idolatry. Look at how good I am. Think of, think of all the things I've done. We have to surrender that. We have to be, come before the Lord broken in that and realize it's by His grace that we are saved through faith. Not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. So if you're watching online or you're here and you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the only way into this kingdom of light. And that kingdom of light will transform your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and to see what you have to say about what is true of us. And I would pray that not one person that's watching or here today would leave without realizing the value the ultimate value, eternal value of coming to Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, that today would be the day that they would believe the good news that Jesus died and was buried and rose again and paid the penalty for their sin. And now, Father, I pray as we sing this last number that you would be glorified through it, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>